We've come to the end of September and the end of Suicide Prevention Month, but that doesn't mean we stop the conversation. We need to talk about suicide 365 days a year, but how do we do it? It's hard to understand why someone doesn't want to live anymore, and it's uncomfortable to talk about it because we just don't know how, we don't know the words to use. The Center for Addiction and Mental Health, known as CAMH, and that's how I'll be talking about it as we go forward, is Canada's largest mental health and addiction teaching hospital, and it's a world-renowned hospital and research center. This month on Suicide Awareness Day, which is international, CAMH launched its biggest public awareness campaign ever called Not Today. I'm talking to Dr. Javeria Zahir from CAMH, whose research into suicide helped develop the Not Today campaign. Hi, Javeria. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thanks. Thank you so much for having me on. Javeria, how did you get involved in researching suicide? It's, uh, it's a very difficult topic to work with every day, I imagine. You know, when I was in medical school, I knew that psychiatry was it for me because it's such a privilege to hear someone's story um, and to have the trust with someone so you could understand what they're going through and how you can best support them. And to me, suicide represented the most tragic end to somebody's story. You know, every day in Canada, we, use, we lose 11 people to suicide. That's 11 lives lost, 11 families, 11 communities. And as someone who's really interested in story, um, to prevent suicide, we need to understand someone's story, their biology, their mental illness, their family history. We need to understand their cultural and social context, their experiences of life stressors. And we need to understand as a society, what, what do we need to do to build a life We'll build a world where every life feels worth living. And so I think for me, as someone who really is passionate about storytelling and who's really passionate about supporting people on their darkest days, as an emergency department psychiatrist, I see people sometimes on the hardest days of their life. And so I know that you know, suicide can feel dark and heavy and mysterious, but I think for me, there's so much hope there. You know, There's so much room to shine a light, to pull um, distress out of the shadows, to help people who are suffering. Um, and it is a great gift uh, to work in this field. The, um, in, in your research, have you been able to determine who is the most likely to start to have suicidal thoughts? And, and it's just that uh, despair and, and desperate, um, deep unhappiness that someone can feel. Have you looked at it from the perspective of illness and demographics, so men and women, and come to some thinking on that? So I think you raise a really important point, and that is to prevent suicide, we really need to understand how different ex people experience suicidal thinking and who's at risk and what does that risk look like? How does it differ and what are the best strategies to reach out? So in Canada, we know that you know, middle-aged men, white middle-aged men tend to be at very high risk for suicide, and it's a group that we often don't think of. Um, we know that one out of every 20 Canadians experiences suicidal thinking, so I think we think of it as pretty uncommon, but there are very, there's quite a lot of people who are suffering in silence and not getting the support that they deserve. We think about our Indigenous communities, our LGBTQ2S communities. Young people are at quite high risk for suicidal thinking. And I think it's really important to point out that the vast majority of people who experience suicidal thinking, and even the vast majority of people who have a suicide attempt, don't die by suicide, that there is hope and there is recovery, um, and there are treatments that work. It's a question of how we can connect people with those treatments and give them hope in the moment and develop treatments that work further on. So I think understanding how risk is different for different groups and working with those groups, talking to them, doing research with them, 
creating interventions together um, for groups um, is the best way forward. I know in my case, and I, I have, you know, reached that level of despair, and I've had in my past some um, attempts, sometimes it, I, I mean, I guess with me, a lot of it was I, I didn't want to live, but I didn't want to die, and I didn't know what to do. And it was that not knowing what to do part that actually caused me to take some action because I just, I couldn't cope with what was going on. But it's not something that I, that I thought about a lot leading into that. So is there in general some planning that goes on behind someone who is thinking of taking their life? One of the most meaningful um, pieces of feedback or, or information I've come across in my research and clinical life as I work with, uh, you know, people who have lived experience of suicidal thinking as part of our research team. Um, and there's a couple quotes that I always remember that when someone is having thoughts of suicide, it's not necessarily their life that they want to end. It's the pain or the suffering or the exhaustion or the confusion. And I think for us to be able to connect with that kind of language is so important because it's not about necessarily living or dying. It's about pain. And I think Another thing that really stands out for me is that, you know, often we think of suicide as suicide as a risk to be managed. Um, but I think if we can start thinking about it as a pain to be understood, um, it can really help us reach, as you said, people earlier. So as you said, you might not necessarily be thinking about suicide, but feeling hopeless, scared, um, a sense of burdensomeness um, is another thing people talk about, a sense of alienation, you know, depression, anxiety, these are really cruel illnesses because they make us think negatively of ourselves. They make us feel like we can't cope in this world, like it's very difficult to make decisions. Someone once said to me, and I'll never forget it, that when I'm well, getting up and going to work is one action. When I'm sick, every decision feels so fraught. Do I toast the bagel? Do I, what do I wear? How do I get, how do I get there? And so when you're, when everything feels like such a battle and it can feel really exhausting. And so I think you're absolutely right. If we can you know, work with people to let them know that if you're having these thoughts, even if you don't necessarily want to die, if you're having thoughts that you don't want to get up anymore, or you're so tired, or you can't sleep, these are indications that you are deserving of care, uh, that there's care available to you, and that if we can catch it earlier, um, then it might help us uh, sort of alleviate suffering later on. How do you, as the person, so you've just talked about some of the indicators uh, that you may be at risk, but how does a person get over the, the stigma and I think sometimes shame that you feel that way to reach out for the help they need? Because I'm, I'm you know, guessing that there are more than, you know, we, we lose 4,000 people in Canada a year to suicide. Um, and I'm, you know, there's many, many more thousands probably who are at risk who can't reach out because they, they just don't know how and they, uh, they, there's a lot of shame and stigma surrounding it. You know, one of people, young people tend to be better at asking for help and talking about their emotions and feelings than uh, maybe people who are a little bit older, you know, women being better at speaking out potentially than men or the gender roles are socialized that maybe it's more socially acceptable. You know, I grew up in a Muslim family. And then when I remember when I was in medical school, my father saying to me, do whatever specialty you want, don't do psychiatry. And I remember saying, well, why, why shouldn't I do psychiatry? And he said, because that's for, the, we don't have those problems. 
those aren't for people like us. And we had mental illness in our family. And so in, you know, for Muslim people or Catholic people, if suicide is this ultimate sin, even reaching out and saying that you have these thoughts can feel like you're doing something wrong and terrible. So, you know, these conversations are really difficult to have. And I think if we can start having the conversations earlier, you know, I'm the mother of two, two daughters. Um, and I think about how if we can talk about suicide or mental illness early before there's a crisis to say that, you know, you might have feelings someday that you feel really scared or worried. You might have feelings someday that, you know, you can't enjoy the things that you love and that doesn't feel like it's moving. You might even have feelings that you don't want to be alive anymore. And if that ever happens, I love you so much. There's treatments that work and you just tell me and I'm here. And so sometimes I think that's one of the things we're proud of of not today is if we can start having these conversations earlier, because, you know, when people are bereaved by suicide, nobody is, nobody is relieved. Nobody is angry. People, people just wish they had that time with their loved one and they could have told them how much they cared before this awful thing happened. And it's uh, so difficult to recognize. I mean, first of all, you don't want to see it in, in the person that you love. You don't, you never want to see that level of, of sadness. And um, I've talked to some people this month and there's a sense of, you know, again, when we started the conversation, it's that, it's that conversation. I didn't really know how to talk about suicide. I didn't know what words to use. It was uncomfortable for me to talk to someone who had lost a person because I didn't know what words to use. Absolutely. So in what I've learned this, this month, one of the things is what you were just talking about with the family. Mm-hmm. That as a, as a, or friends, as a parent or a friend, if you're noticing anything, you need to just be upfront about it and say, hey, mm-hmm. are you thinking about this? Mm-hmm. But that's very, very hard. And, I, and I, I would think it's very hard for a family, unless there's a very serious sort of entrenched mental illness that the family knows about, mm-hmm. often you don't. Yep. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I think often people are worried about saying, you know, when we were developing the campaign, there's a person who works at CAMH, who, uh, Quinn Kirby, who I respect and like so much. Um, and she talked about, you know, the S word, how we sort of try to avoid saying the S word. It's almost like it has some kind of power, like an incantation. Like if we say it, we might, like, you know, make it real. And I think what we know is that asking in a loving way about suicide, about safety, and, you know, there's ways that we can say this, or have you been feeling safe? You know, have you been feeling hopeless? Asking about this is actually, you know, in clinical settings and personal settings can be really um, experienced really positively um, and it can help people feel safer rather than being something that is, you know, often people talk about putting the idea in someone's head. Well, if someone is suffering, you know, there's lots of ideas in their head. And if you feel all alone with those ideas, that can be much worse than someone telling you that they love you and they've noticed a change. What kind of words can we use? So we've gone from saying the person committed suicide because that sounds like they committed a crime mm-hmm. and they've done something wrong. So we know um, that you know, people are beginning to understand that someone is losing their life to suicide. They, mm-hmm. died, they died by suicide. But I've seen, I've read some information where you, you can be, it's almost really blunt and saying, hey, are you thinking about killing yourself? Mm-hmm. that word killing those two words killing yourself is that something that we can that we can say and and as yeah. we try to keep this conversation going 
I think that's the confusion that people feel, right? They're, oh, for they're sure. so worried about saying the wrong thing. Absolutely. I think for me, you know, as I, I reflect on my days, I work in the emergency department at CAMH every Tuesday and Friday. And sometimes I go home on the go train and I think, did I say the right thing? Did I say the wrong thing? Um, what words did I choose? And this is as someone who does suicide research and who works with people in crisis daily, sometimes even I worry about the words that I use. And one thing that helps me is I try to remember the idea of process and intention. And I think if you have the right intention and if you have, you know, you're coming at it from a positive, caring place, even if you get the words wrong a little bit, it doesn't matter as much. One of the things that can be helpful is on the camh.ca website, you know, there are sections on giving help and getting help. And in the giving help section, it can give you some suggestions of words that you can use or statements that you can make. And sometimes even just kind of logging in on your phone or on your laptop, reading through can be very useful. Another wonderful website is jack.org. And they have a really great section for young people to talk to each other about suicide and to talk about like keeping yourself safe and having those conversations, how to reach out, how to ask, how to help people get help. But, and sometimes I think, even for me, I'll still refer to those resources when I'm not sure what to say. And I think it's, it's almost like less of a matter of saying exactly the right thing and more of a matter of like building your confidence to, to feel safe and comfortable yourself. And jack.org um, also deals a lot with self-harm. So that might be cutting yourself or something like that. And I think that might've been why, why jack.org started. It's been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it was for me, when I think about it, one of the first sites I saw that really dealt with the topic of, of suicide. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we've come a long way in our, in our discussions about mental illness and about stigma. And, and this one is, is so important. I want one more question before we talk a little bit more about not today. The stigma that a family or a friend can feel after someone dies by suicide and they don't want people to know what happened. Mm-hmm. They don't want to say, my son died by suicide because they're afraid that I guess that it's going to reflect on them. They, they can't cope with, the, with the, the feelings. Do you, have you come across that in your, in your research? And what would your advice be to those, yeah. to those family members? Absolutely. I think suicide bereavement is one of the hardest types of bereavement. And I would encourage anyone who has lost a loved one to suicide to reach out because the grief is so unique and so specific. You know, there's feelings of, of anger sometimes, of profound sadness, of shame and stigma, of that feeling of, did I miss something? You know, there's feelings of abandonment, feelings of guilt, feelings of, did I do something wrong? And so I think because it's such a complicated grief, if you are bereaved by suicide, you are deserving of of really intensive support. And I think about the matter of disclosure is such an interesting question. And I think I would feel terribly, you know, making a suggestion to somebody because I think ultimately, you know, for them, it it is a personal decision and they need to keep themselves feeling as well as they can in the moment. I will say suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in Canada. And we all know, I think if you have 100 people in the room, 100 of those people have been touched by suicide in some way. And I think in general, if we can start destigmatizing or demystifying suicide, I think it can go a long way in terms of things like fundraising, you know, for research and clinical care, because then you can, 
you know, say that, oh my goodness, this person I loved was affected. It can go a long way in terms of anti-stigma, starting those conversations with people. You know, I, I, I remember when something happened to John, you know, some of the things he was going through. Do you, do you, can, can you kind of see how he was feeling in that moment? Do you identify with that? Can we help get you services? Um, and I think like we, we need to, the more we talk about it, the more we know that it needs, it takes all of us to prevent suicide. So there can, you can be the most loving, gracious, caring family member in the world. You can do everything right and reach out. And you also need support to make sure the person gets good mental health care. You also need to make sure that we live in a society where we can address things like income inequality and housing insecurity and care for addictions. And so it really takes all of us. And that doesn't mean that any group of us is singularly responsible, but it means that we need to kind of hold each other up and take care of each other. And part of that is supporting families. And part of that potentially for families is, is kind of speaking out and sharing their stories. There's a lot of power in story. Like there's so much power in your stories of recovery. So people can see you and say, she reminds me of me and she's been through this and she came out the other side and maybe I can too. And I think there's, there's value in understanding the grief that, that is left behind for people. You know, if someone dies by suicide, seven to 10 people at the very least are deeply affected. It's a trauma that is extraordinary. And I think people, sometimes when you're so down, you don't realize how important you are to people. And at the same time, we need to make sure that we alleviate your suffering because it's not, it's not a choice. It's not a crime. It's a sign of extraordinary suffering. And we need to make sure you get the care you deserve in that moment. And it's not selfish, which it's is something selfish. that, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, the not today, uh, not today. So when I see going through my, my social media feed is not suicide, not today. And it's very, very powerful because it's just those two, it's four words, not suicide, not today. And the, the stories and you've used stories to reinforce that. Why, why now and why is not today the biggest public awareness campaign that CAMH has done? And CAMH has done a lot of great work and a lot of public work on, on mental illness and addiction. And addiction, exactly. And I think we often forget about addiction too, but you know, addiction is so important and people who have addiction are so deserving of care and often represents emotional distress or mental illness that they're trying to, you know, treat with addiction. So, you know, I think in the last 15 years, we've come a long way in understanding depression, anxiety, addiction, you know, psychosis, bipolar, that people understand that mental illness is real, it exists, and it can affect all of us. And I think even with the pandemic, you think about the pandemic as this like, extraordinary shared trauma, where we understand each of us, the effects of social isolation, of economic hardship, um, of fear, of worry. And so I think all of us are at the point now, I think, where as a society, we understand that mental health is health, that mental health is real, and that to have a functioning society, a cohesive society, you know, cohesive families, we need to make sure that we treat mental health with the same um, care that we do physical health. And then one step further, when we think, and I think this is where we were at CAMH, is when you think about mental illness and you think about families and people who are suffering, the thing that people fear is suicide, you know, is losing someone that you love is this fatal outcome of mental illness. And I think even beyond that, if someone is at the point where they're experiencing suicidal thinking, that is extraordinary distress. It's extraordinarily distressing. And even beyond preventing suicide, you know, supporting these people who are living through this one out of every 20 Canadians. And so for us, not Suicide, Not Today was a call to action. Um, I was so proud of how the campaign was developed. Um, they consulted with people with lived experience, um, people 
fit bereaved families, with indigenous communities, um, LGBTQS communities, young people, to say, okay, if you're suffering or your loved one is suffering, what is a message, as you said, four words, um, what, is, what is something that we can kind of hold on to? And Not Suicide Not Today then becomes a pledge. It's a pledge that all of us can take to start having difficult conversations, to reaching out to people that we love, to keeping ourselves safe for one more day. Because if we have one more day, it means we have time. So we have time for people to get connected to the services they need and deserve. We have time to invest in research breakthroughs to improve the access to care, improve personalized care for people who are suffering. We have time to change the conversations with each other to reach out, um, to get rid of stigma, to shine a light. And we have time to invest even more broadly, to invest in housing, to invest in social determinants of health, to overcome stigma and shame and discrimination. And I think if we all work together, if we have this time, then I think together we can prevent suicide. And in that moment, not suicide, not today becomes a pledge that someone can take themselves to be safe in that moment, knowing that everybody else is doing the same thing, that we can all work together. And I think it's going to take all of us to prevent suicide. Yeah, I think that that's really important that the not suicide, not today, what it does for the person who's mm -hmm. in that situation, right? And it's, it's kind of similar to 12-step uh, programs where it's, you know, one day at a time and sometimes one hour at a time or one minute at a time that the person has to say, okay, I'm not right at this very moment. Because sometimes with um, suicide, I think that that moment just hits. And then when I said a few minutes ago, it's not, it's not selfishness. Some people think it's selfish. Our will to live as a human is so strong. Absolutely. Get to a level where you feel you want to die is extraordinary. I think a lot about, you know, pain and suffering in that moment and escape from pain. And, you know, there's David Foster Wallace has written on this. And you think about even images of 9-11 that people sometimes have. And, you know, if you are feeling like you're burning, if you're feeling like you can't live another day, um, it's not about making a selfish choice. It's about being in pain and knowing that in those dark, dark moments that there is alleviation of that suffering. One of the examples I often think about is I think about sunburns um, in a sense. And I think most people have had a sunburn in their lives. Um, I'm a darker skinned person, so less often for me. But, you know, when you have a sunburn, things that feel really normal, normally, like someone grabbing your arm or taking a shower can feel exquisitely painful. And I think of that with suicidal thinking is you may wake up in the morning and the thoughts are okay, but at night when you can't get to sleep, they come up in a really significant way. Or normally if you have a, you know, a fight with a partner, you can kind of cope with it. But when you're already having so much pain, it can kind of flare up. And so think not today is sort of revolves around keeping yourself safe in the moment when those awful thought comes. And then that gives us time to get that awfulness down to treat the underlying causes of feeling awful. So it, we need both. Definitely. And we need a healthy society. So we need all three. So I think it's a pledge that works in so many different ways and it can be so meaningful for people. Javeria, thank you so much for talking to me today. The um, not today, not suicide, not today. Like I said, I, it's been in my social feed. I know that I follow mental health websites and social media. So, you know, I may be seeing it more, but I encourage everybody to go and go to the camh.ca. So that's C-A-M-H.ca website and you'll be able to see videos of people with lived experience. And then there's just so much information there to help us keep this conversation going. Thank you so much for your time today. It was such a pleasure to speak with you.